0: Lord, would you please uh, grant us to be able to really focus in on what your word says. Uh, We pray that you would take away any distractions. We pray, Father, that you would help our hearts to be melted and to be in tune with your spirit. Speak to us, O Lord. Speak to different people in different places and help them to really grasp and see what you have for them today. Help me, Lord. Give me freedom and liberty to be able to to teach and to preach your word in a way that people can understand and they can grasp and grow. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oftentimes when someone dies, another loved one will pay a tribute to them. In 1770, the great evangelist George Whitefield died and... John Wesley was the one who came and preached his funeral sermon. In fact, Whitfield had had said before he died that he wanted John Wesley to preach his sermon. And this was interesting because these two men came from different theological backgrounds. George Whitfield was a strong Calvinist. John Wesley was a strong Arminian. And that had kept them from really being able to work in the vineyard together for much of their ministries Even though they love Jesus, both of them love the Lord, and God used both of them in powerful ways. But here at at, at Whitfield's death, John Wesley came and he preached his funeral sermon. And I just want to give you a little bit of a sample of that sermon. He says, Wesley says, "...I may close this head with observing what an honor it pleased God to put upon his faithful servant." By allowing him to declare his everlasting gospel in so many various countries to such numbers of people and with so great an effect on so many of their precious souls. Have we read or heard of any person since the apostles who testified the gospel of the grace of God through so widely extended a space, through so large a part of the habitable world? Have we read or heard of any person who called so many thousands, so many myriads of sinners to repentance? Above all, have we read or heard of any who has been a blessed instrument in his hand of bringing so many sinners from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God? What a beautiful, glowing tribute, isn't it, from Wesley to Whitfield? But what we're going to be looking at this morning is another tribute, an even greater tribute. This tribute comes from the lips of Jesus Christ himself, and it's towards his servant John the Baptist. And John hasn't even died yet. John doesn't hear this tribute with his own ears. Jesus gives the tribute to him after some of his disciples had already left. But we have this tribute that we want to really focus in on today. You see, John was in prison at this moment because of his stand for righteousness. He had called out the king. King Herod had been actually committing adultery. He had taken his brother's wife and was now living with her even though he had no right, no lawful right to do that. And John rebuked him. And so John got imprisoned for that and later he would have his head chopped off because of that strong stand that he took. So we're going to be looking at Jesus and John today. Jesus and John, and especially Jesus' tribute to John the Baptist. And we're going to be looking at three subsections. This is a long section. It's more ground than we usually cover. So we're going to be moving a little bit faster. But there's three things I want you to see. First of all, Jesus establishing John's faith, verses 18 to 23. And then Jesus extolling John's greatness, verses 24 to 28. And then Jesus... Elevating John's ministry, verses 29 to 35. So, those are the sections we're going to be hitting. So, number one, Jesus establishes John's faith. Look at verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. So, John had his own disciples just like Jesus did. And John's disciples came to him and they were reporting to him about all these things. Now, all what things? all the things we just read about in chapter 7. They told him about how the centurion slave was healed by Jesus as he just spoke the word from a distance. He didn't even have to come to his house. And then they reported to him how the widow of Nain... If you guys missed that one, you should get to go online and listen to it. I I, I feel bad for people who don't get everything. They don't, you know, anyway. The widow of Nain lost her son, and here's this poor widow who's going to be destitute and become a beggar because she has no one to care for her. And Jesus raises up her son because he has a heart filled with compassion, and he gives back this son to her mother. And so they're reporting these miracles to John there in prison verse 17 says that the report of him concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district so Jesus was gaining an influence he's becoming more and more popular he's becoming famous like wildfire word of Jesus is spreading throughout the entire region of Palestine and the disciples bring some of that word they visit John in prison and they tell him this is what's happening you, you won't believe the things that Jesus Christ is doing. And then verse 19, summoning two of his disciples, John sent to them, he sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for somebody else? Now if you're like me, you're thinking, I don't get this. Why would Je- John ask that question of Jesus? Are you the expected one? Now, the expected one is a title. It's a technical title, and it refers to the Messiah. Are you the one the Jews have been expecting? We've been looking for and longing for this Deliverer, this one who would come and save us and deliver us. Are you him, or should we be looking for somebody else? So why would John come to that place of doubt and confusion? Didn't John know about Jesus' birth? They were cousins, right? He would have known that Jesus was born of a virgin. He would have known something of Jesus' sinless, peerless, holy life, even as a boy growing up. It was John that saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus. It was John that heard the words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In fact, it was John who said, I'm not even unworthy to untie his sandals. That's what a slave would do. He would wash the feet of somebody else. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. He's so great. I can only baptize with water. He's going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Later on, he would take some of his disciples and then he would point them towards Jesus and he would say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it would seem certainly John knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Why is he now starting to ask questions about whether Jesus is that Messiah or not? Now to get over this tension, some Bible commentators say that well Jesus really I mean John really didn't have any doubts about Jesus. It was just his disciples that had the doubts. And so he's causing them to go to Jesus to ask this question so that Jesus can dispel any doubt in their minds. John has no doubts but his disciples do and so it's for their sake that he sends them to Jesus. But I, as I read and reread the text, I just don't think that jives with what we actually read. Okay, let's let's take a look at it. In verse 19, John summons his disciples and sends them to the Lord So John takes the initiative, he sends them to the Lord because he can't go, and he says, ask this question, are you the expected one? And then in verse 22, Jesus answered and said to John's disciples, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. In other words, Jesus understood that it was John that needed to have this explanation. Go and report to John what you've just seen and heard. So in my mind, that just doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to square with what we find here in the text. My conclusion is that John had doubts. That he was confused and that he had come to a point of crisis where he's starting to have doubts. Is Jesus really the expected one or not? Now, why would he have doubts? That's the question we really need to ask. Why would John have these doubts? Well... He's noticing that things aren't adding up. He's noticing that there's no throne. There's no crown. There's no kingliness associated with Jesus. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't really act like a king too much. He seems like to be a humble servant of the people. They were expecting someone who would ride on this great white stallion into Jerusalem and overthrow the Romans... And make the Jews the top nation of the world. And that wasn't happening. In fact, the top religious leaders in that day were rejecting Jesus Christ. Some of them were starting to try to turn the people away from Jesus. And so this didn't fit with their expectation of the Messiah. On top of that, John is in prison. And one of the prophecies in Isaiah 61 said that he would come and set the captives free. Well, John wasn't set free. He's suffering for righteousness' sake. Jesus doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And so because his experience seems to contradict his understanding of the Scripture, he's thrown into confusion and he starts to have some doubts. And he needs to get those doubts cleared up. You see, when the Messiah came, the Jews expected conquest and power and victory and glory and sovereignty. And they looked at Jesus and saw a humble servant. A person who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And so John really wants to get this matter settled in his mind. Now notice what Jesus does to help John. Verse 20, When the men came to him, that is Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? At that very time, He cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and He gave sight to many who were blind. And He answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me." So here comes John in proxy, sending his disciples. But his disciples come on his behalf. And they're saying, we're confused. Jesus, could you help us understand, are you really him? And if so, why isn't everything taking place the way we thought it was going to take place? And what does Jesus do? He didn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. He says, just stay right here for a while. Stick around. I want you to watch And I want you to listen. And he starts healing people with blinded eyes and unstopping people with deaf ears and people who are paralyzed. He raises up. And he's preaching the gospel to them. And then he turns around and says, go share that with John. Go tell him what you just saw. In other words, my validation to be the Messiah is seen in my life and in my ministry and in my works. Just go tell him what you saw. You see, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah 35, five says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. This is when Messiah comes. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. So when Messiah comes, this is what's going to happen. And then in Isaiah 61.1, It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. So healings, miracles, resurrections, and preaching the gospel to the afflicted and to the poor. That's what the prophecy said about the Messiah. And that's what Jesus was doing. Go back and tell John. That'll give him reassurance for his faith. Notice verse 23 though. In verse 23, Jesus said, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me. There's a gentle reproof, a gentle word of correction, isn't there? John was starting to stumble over Jesus, starting to take offense at Him because he couldn't square up what was happening with what he thought the prophecies taught. And Jesus said, The person is happy who doesn't take offense in me. The person is happy who can just receive me for who I claim to be. So John is suffering, His experience seemed to contradict what he thought the Messiah was all about. And so Jesus says, Hold on in the dark what you have believed in the light. Don't let go when you're suffering what you have learned to be the truth when you were not suffering. That's a good word for us, isn't it? Some of you may be suffering. Hold on to the truth of God when you go through those dark times. Don't let go believe what God has shown you in the light believe it when it's dark now there might be some of us who presently are going through a period of doubt I'm not sure about that but there might be some of you there might be some of you who have gone through periods of doubt or maybe in the future like John will go through periods of doubt and you don't need to beat yourself up and condemn yourself if you go through a time of doubt John was a great saint of God. He was a great believer. And yet he had a period when he needed to have his doubts cleared up. So if you pass through a time like that, what should you do? I submit to you, you should do the same thing that John did. John couldn't go in person to Jesus, so he sent his disciples to Jesus. And John asked some questions. He wanted to get this cleared up. He didn't want to have doubts. So if you're going through a period of doubt, go to the Lord. Go to him in prayer. Ask him, Lord, would you please clear up this thing that's bothering me in my mind? Would you please help me to really rectify my circumstances with what I've always thought should have been true about my condition and state? Sometimes people doubt because they're suffering. And they say, maybe there really isn't a God because if there was a God, would He really let this happen to me? That's basically what was happening to John. So go to Jesus. Ask him to please clear up this in your mind. And what did these disciples, or disciples of John do? They looked at Jesus and they looked at his life and they looked at what he did. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. Go back to the gospel accounts and reread them. Just focus on Jesus. Read about who he was, what he did. Read about his sufferings and his death and especially his resurrection last week at this memorial service that we went to there's a dear brother there actually the son of the person who had died and he was exhorting the people who had come to that memorial service to read this booklet that he was giving away it was all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he was talking about a time in his life when he was 20 years old so this is probably 18 years ago or so it's hard to believe that Sean could be 38 but I think he is (laughs) But anyway, he, he was saying, and I remember this time, we, we had what we called house churches at our previous church, and they were just like our missional community, sort of. <laughs> and there was a time when he would come week after week, and he was in this great period of depression, because he had these doubts. He was attending a college, and something that professors were saying were causing him to doubt his faith. And so for a period of months, he was just depressed, And we were trying our hardest to help him and to get him through this time. But he said what helped him was he went back and he focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he began asking himself, what evidence do we really have that Jesus rose from the dead? Because folks, really everything hangs on that. If Jesus rose from the dead, then what he said about himself was true. He wasn't an imposter. He wasn't a charlatan. So what he claimed, who he claimed to be is true. What he claimed to do is true. So if you're having periods of doubt, I encourage you, go back and focus on the resurrection. You know, there is so much, and I can't really go into the evidence this morning, but there's so much evidence that Jesus Christ actually did rise from the dead that if you have doubts, focus on that. And once you know that to be true, then okay, The Bible is true because Jesus said the Bible was true. Jesus is God because Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus died for my sins because He claimed to die for sin. You see, everything falls into place once the resurrection is true and solid in your thinking. So, Jesus, out of a kind and compassionate heart, establishes His servant's faith. He reassures him. Yes, I'm the Messiah. Don't stumble over me. Hold on to what you know. And then secondly, Jesus Extols John's greatness he extols his greatness and I find this really fascinating because Jesus reproves him and he praises him but he reproves him in private he just tells his two disciples go back and tell John this he doesn't shout that out to the crowd but after the two disciples are gone then he starts shouting out to the crowd the greatness of John the Baptist so Jesus reproves in private and he praises in public and I think there's a lesson for us there so often we get that backwards. But wouldn't it be good if we were known as people that when someone is doing something wrong, we take them aside privately, just like Jesus taught us to do? When your brother sins, go and reprove him in private, he said. But then when someone does something good, let's tell the world. Let's, let's, let's celebrate that fact. So, what we find him doing in this section, verses 24 through 28, is he's asking three questions. And all three of these questions begin with the same thing. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? What did you go out in the wilderness to see? What did you go out in the wilderness to see? And then he follows that up with three other statements. And each time he expects us to say, once he makes a statement, he expects us to say no. He says, did you go out to see a reed shaken in the wind? No. Did you go out in the wilderness to see a man dressed in soft clothing? No. Did you go out in the wilderness to see a prophet? Well, yes and no. We'll get to that in a minute. So he expects a negative reply. Let's take 3 of those right now. Did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? Now when John was preaching on the banks of the Jordan River, there would have been reeds, and as the wind came through it would have shaken those reeds back and forth. Did you go out into the wilderness to see a man who is spineless, who is fickle, who is wavering, who didn't take a strong stand for truth? Or did you go out to see a man with an iron conviction? That's who John was, wasn't it? In fact, he died because he stood so strongly for the truth. Nothing could sway him. Doesn't matter if the big shots from Jerusalem came down, he didn't change his message. Didn't matter if he's talking to harlots and prostitutes, he didn't change his message. He kept declaring the truth no matter who was there. He wasn't a man pleaser, was he? We can learn so much from this guy because we tend to be man pleasers. I'll even confess that sometimes when I see certain people come through the doors and I know they hold certain convictions, I don't want to offend them, and so I struggle. I, I really struggle to say what I think the Lord wants me to say. We have that tendency as sinners to be man-pleasers, and God wants us to be God-pleasers. So no, he wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. Remember, sometimes I, I, I'm blown away by the kind of things John would say. He would say, you brood of vipers. I mean snakes. You snakes! <laughs> who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? he would say things like God's got an axe and it's sitting right there by the tree folks you're the tree and the, la- the axe is laid right at your root and unless you bear fruit in keeping with repentance he's going to pick up that axe and he's going to chop you down and you know what he's going to do with you? he's going to throw you into the fire and then John would say that to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the prostitutes and the harlots. he didn't care who it was that was his message it was a message of sin and judgment and damnation Unless people repented. And then he promised them forgiveness of sins. So, no, he wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. Well, then, did you expect to go out to the wilderness to see a man dressed in soft clothing? No. <laughs> he says, people who like to dress up and wear soft clothing, you find those in royal palaces. Where do you find John? The desert. What's he wearing? camel's hair is camel's hair going to be comfortable clothing you think oh I, I don't think I can bear to wear camel's clothing the itchiness from that thing I mean if you wanted to punish yourself you might put a camel's hair coat on for a day so he wears camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and remember what he eats grasshoppers and honey that's his diet grasshoppers and honey whatever you can find out there in the wilderness so what, what is Jesus saying about him Not only was he a man of conviction, he was a man of self-sacrifice and self-denial. Why do you suppose John cloistered himself off, almost like a hermit, and separated himself from society? He lived by himself in the deserts. I, I can't prove this to you my, my implied conviction is that he did that because God had called him to be his man and he needed to hear from God he needed to commune with God he needed to hear the voice of God and so he separated himself from the world so that he could be in tune with the Lord and that he would know when he was to go and he would know what the message was to say when he was needed to say it see yeah John was a different kind of guy he practiced self-denial in order to commune with God and to do the will of God. I wonder how much we're like John in that respect. How much self-denial do we practice in order to commune with God or to do the will of God? Are we willing to give up anything for the sake of communing with God? Are we willing to give up eating food for a day so we can fast? Are we willing to give up sleep so that we'll have time with our Lord before it gets too busy in the day? Are we willing to give up some of our money? I say our money. It's not really ours anyway, is it? Some of his money and not indulge ourselves? You know, John wasn't like a Hollywood playboy who was living in luxury. John was a man who just lived an austere, ascetic life out there in the wilderness. He never had anything in in the world's way of thinking, but he had all of God that he could possibly contain. And Jesus called him the greatest man who'd ever lived. So no, he wasn't a man dressed in soft clothing. Well, what about? Did you go out in the wilderness to see a prophet? This is an answer with a yes and no. Yes, John was a prophet, wasn't he? But no, he wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't any ordinary prophet. He was the greatest prophet who had ever lived. He wasn't greater in the sense that he was more holy or more devoted or more zealous... Because you had other prophets of God that could equal him in those things. But I believe he was greater in the sense that he had the greatest privilege of any prophet who had ever lived. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. And there was only one prophet that fit that category. Isaiah didn't have that privilege. Moses didn't have it. Jeremiah didn't. Elijah, Elisha, Zephaniah, Haggai, none of the other prophets of the Old Testament had the privilege of introducing the Messiah, the Son of God, to the people of Israel in order to prepare their way to receive him. It's kind of like the privilege that Mary had. She was blessed among women because she had the privilege of bringing the Messiah into the world. Well, Jesus had the privilege of introducing the Messiah to Israel and to get Israel ready to receive Him. So that's what I think Jesus means by saying He's more than a prophet. And then He quotes Malachi 3.1. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, he says. Think about this for a minute. This really wasn't John's John's finest hour, was it? I mean, he's doubting. He's doubting if Jesus is the Messiah. And what does Jesus do? Does he angrily turn around and condemn John? How could you have such a lack of faith after all I've done and after all you've seen? You see the kindness and compassion and tenderness of Christ here that he gives living proof for John of who he was. He says to the disciples, stick around and watch and listen and I'll do a few miracles and I'll quote some scripture to you and you go back and tell John all about what I've just said to you. He reinforces the faith of John even though John is wavering. And then he publicly turns around to the crowd and says to the crowd, Hey, let me brag on my servant a little bit. He can't hear it right now, but I just want to tell you how great this man is. He's a man of conviction. He's a man of self-denial. He's the greatest prophet who's ever lived. And you know, I think this is a picture of what's going to happen on Judgment Day for believers. Because on Judgment Day, the Lord is going to single- True believers out of the crowd. If you are a Christian today, he's going to single you out. He's going to ask you to come in front of the billions of people who have ever lived and he's going to start bragging on you. (laughs) He's not going to point to a single fault, a single mistake, a single sin you've ever done because they're all under the blood. They're canceled. And he's going to start telling that multitude, This is my servant. In fact, let me, let me just show you their life. And he'll have a movie. I'm just guessing this. But he'll you have know, some kind of a way to show the whole world all the things that you've ever done for his sake. He'll show them the time that you gave back change at the grocery store because they pay, overpaid you because you were a Christian. He'll point to the times that you got up early in prayer and gave up sleep because you wanted to seek his face. He'll show the world the times that you witnessed to people He'll show them the times when you were honest and a man of integrity. He'll show them the times when you wept with those who wept and rejoiced with those who rejoiced and prayed for people who were suffering. He's going to display that before a watching world and he's going to brag on his servant. That's almost too good to believe, isn't it? But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, When Jesus comes, then each man's praise will come from God. Each man's praise. And he's talking there about Christians. Now the lost are not going to have praise. They'll be cast into the furnace of fire. But the righteous will have the praise of Jesus Christ and he's going to say to them, Welcome, my son. Enter into the joy of your master, thou good and faithful servant. So folks, since that is the truth, wouldn't it be wise for us to live every moment of our life as far as possible for His praise and not for man's. We're so... We're so silly when it comes to living for what so-and-so thinks or what so-and-so thinks. What will they say? What will they think if I do this? All of that is rubbish when you consider the final day when we stand before Jesus. All that's going to matter then is what have I done for Him? Have I pleased Him? Does He approve of what I have done? so I want to encourage you to do that be a man of conviction be a man of self-denial and be a man who lives for the praise of Jesus Christ notice the last statement that Jesus makes here he says yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he this is another one of those statements that we were perplexed at aren't we What does that mean? Nobody's greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. (laughs) Okay? Help me, Lord. (laughs) Well, let's start with the idea of the kingdom of God. What is that? The kingdom of God is His saving rule. So the kingdom of God includes all who are saved. So I wouldn't... think by that that would include all saints in the Old Testament and all saints in the New Testament and I think I, I, I think I could actually prove that in Luke 13 Jesus says there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when Abraham Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets are in the kingdom of God and you yourselves are cast out so Abraham Isaac and Jacob are in the kingdom of God so the kingdom of God is not just New Testament saints it's all God's people from all the ages but there is a line of demarcation between Old Testament saints in the kingdom and New Testament saints in the kingdom. Old Testament saints lived in the era of promise. New Testament saints live in the era of fulfillment. You see, if you were an Old Testament saint, the New, tu- the new covenant had not been ratified yet. The sacrifice had not been made on the cross. Jesus had not risen from the dead. He had not ascended to heaven. He had not poured out his spirit. Your understanding of truth would be very limited, kind of like a shadowy figure. Or for those of you who have been in areas where it's just semi dark and it's kind of hard to make out images, that's kind of like what it was like to live under the Old Testament. They really didn't have a clear picture of Christ. In fact, think about John John the Baptist could not preach a sermon on the resurrection. He couldn't preach a sermon on the the cross, even. John didn't understand the cross. He didn't understand the resurrection. He had no understanding that Jesus would ascend to heaven. He really didn't have a, a clear glimpse of the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost or the second coming of Christ. These would be mysteries to John. But the weakest Christian in the world is greater in the kingdom because they are greater in terms of privilege. They see clearly. <laughs> they, even if all they know is, Jesus is God and He died for my sins and He rose from the dead. If that's all they know, they're greater than John. They have more light than John had. Now, they're not greater in terms of zeal or devotion or holiness. They're greater in terms of privilege. So do you see, do you see the privilege that you have today? Do you understand the privilege that you have by living on this side of the cross and having an open Bible? You have 66 books that explain to you everything you need to know for life and godliness. What a privilege that is. And that is ours. Now let's look at the third aspect. Jesus elevating John's ministry. Jesus elevating John's ministry. Verse 29 to 35. And I speak about him elevating his ministry in the sense that Jesus shows the significance and the impact that John's ministry had on the people of his day. To those who repented at his preaching, they had forgiveness of sins, they had everlasting salvation. For those who would not repent at his preaching, that was the grounds of their damnation. And Jesus opens up and helps us to see both the, re, the repentant and the unrepentant in this passage. So first of all, let's, let's notice the repentant. Nobody was nonchalant about John, weren't they? And take him or leave him. No, you either took him or you left him. That's the way it was with John. You either loved him or you hated him. You either bowed to the preaching and were saved or you stiffened your neck and you were damned. John was a kind of turn or burn person. I mean, that's, that's what his preaching was like. Hellfire and damnation, repentance, judgment. That was, that was John. So notice the repentant. Verse 29. When all the people, that would be the common people, and the tax collectors heard this, heard Jesus praising John, they acknowledged God's justice. That means they acknowledged that God was right in raising up John and sending him out with this message. They acknowledged God was right to do that. Why? Because they were baptized with the baptism of John. Now, what kind of a baptism did John give? Baptism of repentance. These are the people that repented. John preached. You better repent because the axe was laid at the root of the tree. If you don't repent, he's going to cast you into the fire. You've got to repent. You've got to. And some of them did. Some of the common people, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the common person, they were the ones who repented. God was right to do that. But then he turns around in verses 30 to 35 and he speaks about a whole other group of people. Look at verse 30. But, word of contrast, in contrast to those who repented, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. That is a scary verse. I mean, think about that verse. These people rejected God's purpose themselves what was God's purpose for them to repent and be baptized and prepare their hearts for Jesus Christ when he came on the scene they rejected that they would not be baptized why because you had to repent in order to get baptized in fact in Matthew chapter 3 it says the people that got baptized they had to confess their sins it was different than when we baptize today no one really confesses their sins too much John required that they confess their sins and then they would baptize them These people were too proud and too self-righteous to ever confess that they needed to be baptized. Before John started baptizing people, who were the only people that were ever baptized? Do you know? They were Gentiles. If a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, they would baptize him. And they would offer sacrifice for him and they would circumcise him. That was the way of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish faith. So what what John the Baptist is basically saying is, Folks, you're just as guilty and just as sinful as those dirty Gentile dogs over there that you despise. And until you admit that and acknowledge that and are willing to repent of your sins like they did, you can't have forgiveness of sins. Now how do you think a religious leader, like a Pharisee or a lawyer, is going to take that? Forget it. They'd rather die than be linked in with other Gentile dogs. And so they rejected God's purpose for themselves. And unless they repented sometime during their life, they were damned. Do you see what pride will do to somebody? It will damn them for all eternity. You need to be humble if you will ever get into heaven. You need to humble yourself before God's mighty hand and admit that I'm sinful, I'm unworthy, I'm guilty, Lord. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That needs to be the prayer if you'll ever be saved. But these lawyers and Pharisees were just too proud to do that. And so Jesus wants to give an illustration of what these proud Pharisees and lawyers are like. So in verses 31 to 35, he gives a little parable. He says, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? They're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, We played the flute for you but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now notice this little illustration. He says, These proud Pharisees are like children. And children would sometimes go play in the marketplace. When they weren't selling wares on a particular day, the farmers weren't there with their goods, the children would find a spot and they would just have fun. They would play. And one of the things they liked to play was make believe. They would mimic their parents just like kids do today. Like a little boy walking around in his dad's army boots, you know, or the little girl wearing a mama's dress and putting lipstick on, or you know, or playing work or playing store or whatever. Back in this day, they also did the same thing. But they would play wedding and funeral. Wedding and funeral. And so when they played wedding, somebody got to be the bride, and someone got to be the groom, and someone was the best man, and someone was the musicians playing the happy songs. Jesus is saying, John the Baptist came, and he played funeral. He came and he sang a dirge. He only had one note to his preaching: repent or perish. It was all about sin and judgment. It was preaching intended to make you weep over your sins and mourn over your past life. It was like a funeral. That's why John came. But did when he sang the dirge to the people, did they weep? No, they wouldn't be baptized. They wouldn't repent. They wouldn't mourn over their sins. They wouldn't play the game. They were like spoiled kids. A spoiled sport. I'll take my ball and go home. I don't want to play according to those rules. I don't like this game. But then Jesus came and Jesus played wedding. You see, John was kind of an isolated hermit type of a guy. In fact, it says... For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. That's just a colloquialism for he didn't live the normal kind of life that everybody else did. Everybody else enjoyed socializing and feasting. John the Baptist was different. He came eating no bread and drinking no wine. He was stuck away off in the deserts by himself with the Lord. And so what'd they say about him? He's got a demon. They said they looked at his life and they said he's he's kind of crazy. His life doesn't look like anybody else's. This guy's crazy. He must have a demon. But then Jesus comes, and instead of playing funeral, Jesus plays wedding. He has a wedding type of spirit to his ministry because he's with the people. He goes to the feasts. He goes to the feast with the Pharisees, but he also goes to the feast with the tax collectors and the harlots. He goes with everybody. He hobnobs and he rubs shoulders with anybody. He's a social person. He gets into their lives he fellowships with his disciples and he fellowships with the multitudes and his message is not a funeral message so much as it is a message of joy and life and blessing and salvation and forgiveness it's a different note to it it's a happy note it's a celebratory note just like a wedding but what do the people do with Jesus what do the religious leaders do they love him and fall down and repent of their sins and say I'm going to become a disciple Hardly. They reject Jesus just like they rejected John. So they're like children in the marketplace. They won't dance when someone wants to play wedding and they won't weep when someone sings the dirge. They don't go along. You see, they can't be pleased by any kind of ministry. They reject both Jesus and John. So when John came, John called for a fast and they rejected Him. Jesus called for a feast, and they rejected Him. John preached a message of judgment, they rejected Him. Jesus preached a message of joy, and they rejected Him. It didn't matter what they preached or what they called for, they were too proud to to humble themselves and receive the message of life from either one. And so Jesus says at the very end, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now, that's another puzzling statement. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> well, a wise decision is vindicated because of the actions that it produces. If you make wise decisions, you'll find good results. Good actions will flow out of that wise decision. It's the same way with Jesus and John. He says, Is Jesus really a glutton and a drunkard? Well, look at his disciples, look at their lives, look at the children that he has produced, the fruit. Or is John really a demon-possessed, crazy man? Look at his disciples. What kind of fruit, what kind of disciples were produced by his ministry? This morning, let me just boil this down and just ask you a question. When you think about your life, is it more like these tax collectors and harlots that repented at the preaching of John? Or is it more like the Pharisees and the lawyers who rejected God's purpose for them and were unwilling to be baptized. Is your life characterized by pride, self-righteousness? I'm okay. I'm a good person. I really don't need that Jesus stuff. I'm sure that God's going to accept me because I've got a good heart. I'm a generous person. People know this about me. I'm going to be okay. Is that the way you approach God? If it is, please repent this morning please humble yourself because if you die with that kind of an attitude, you're going to go down to your house. How does Jesus put it? He said the Pharisee went down... What's the opposite of justified? Condemned. And the tax collector went down justified. So the one who claims to be okay is going to be condemned in the end. But the one who takes the position I'm not okay... I need help. The song we sang, You are my only hope. You're my only help, Lord. I've got no other... This arm of flesh cannot save me. There's nothing I can do to bring forgiveness to myself. I'm lost and I'm undone and ruined. I need a Savior. But God has graciously and willingly provided His own Son as a Savior. (coughs) So where do you stand with God Have you ever humbled yourself and repented and said, Christ Jesus, you are my only hope. I trust you. I trust you. I'm not trusting myself anymore. I'm trusting you to be my, my salvation. Do you live with conviction? Do you live a life of self-denial? And do you live a life seeking to bring honor and pleasure to God? Not a man-pleaser, but a God-pleaser. Remember, there's coming a day when we're all going to stand before the Lord. And the Lord's going to do some bragging on His servants. Wouldn't it be good if we had a little bit more for Him to brag about? If we did a little bit more for Him rather than for ourselves or for what somebody else might think about us. Wouldn't it be good if we, our mind was constantly thinking, what does the Lord think about this? What does he think about this decision, this spending decision, this decision to where I'm going to work, this decision where I'll go to school, or who I'll relate to, or who I'll hang out with, or whatever it happens to be. May he help us to really bring those truths home today. Lord, would you please do that work in our hearts? We pray that we would live for eternity and not for time, Lord. And that we would learn some valuable lessons from John. Lord, how sweet a thought it is that just as you gave tribute to John, there's coming a day when you'll actually give tribute to us. <laughs> wow. It seems like we're just going to be embarrassed. Lord, I, I don't deserve any of this. I, I feel out of place, Lord. I, I really don't feel worthy that you should say a kind word like that. But we're thankful that you are so gracious and so tender and kind that even when we have doubts like John, you draw near and you reassure us and you give us hope and faith and strengthen us again. So Lord, help us to take the lessons from this that are relevant and needful for ourself today. In Jesus' name, amen.